Um, if you have a Bible, open it up to Psalm chapter 27. Psalm chapter 27. We're continuing our series, Collide, Emotion Meets Truth in the Psalms. And what I want you to see is that we're learning how to have a very private devotional relationship with God. Um, Jesus talked about praying in your closet, right? Just you and God. And we see that pattern in the Psalms where we have a real relationship with Him, where we're talking about real struggles and we're seeking Him and His Word in prayer and in worship. It also gives us a pattern for broader corporate worship, right? Like gathering as we are here or gathering in small groups. It gives us a pattern for, for being real and pursuing Him, listening to Him, talking to Him, and speaking His Word back to Him. In Psalm 27, we have a theme of fear. And so we are challenged to collide with God when it comes to our fear, to collide with fear, to be real about the things that scare us. There's different things that scare different people, right? If I were to uh, somehow be able to see your nightmares, we have nightmares about different things. There are different things that keep us up at night. There are different things that cause us anxiety. But the core of this passage is that God is the only real stronghold from those fears. He's the only real protection from those things that we're afraid of. And so we'll see that in Psalm 27, if you'll follow along with me. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let me pray and ask God to make this real for us today. God, we ask that you would help us to live this, that you would help us to believe you. We pray that your word would shape us and change us. We ask that your spirit would meet us here. God, I pray for those of us that already are... Uh, committed to you that you would transform us more and more in the image of your son. Lord, I know that there are many here that aren't sure about you, and I, I pray for open minds and open hearts. Help us to listen, God. Help us to be aware of what you have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was in college, I lived with a friend. Uh, we both did youth ministry. He was the youth pastor at the church, and I was kind of like an intern working with him. 
and we lived at this kind of abandoned tennis club. Um, so it was just out in the country. I guess it, would, it had been a bad location, and it never made it as a business. And so somehow my friend got a good deal on renting it, and I rented a room from him. Um, but it was basically this commercial building, right? It was just kind of an empty shell of a building, not really meant for people to live in. And so out in the country, coming home late at night, because we'd be up late doing youth activities. So we'd come in late at night. It was kind of eerie sometimes, coming home late by yourself. Usually when one of us would come in uh, second, the other one would already be asleep, right? So it was dark. It was out in the middle of nowhere. It was kind of a, like I said, kind of this eerie commercial building, right? Like imagine uh, fluorescent lights flickering, right? You know, like in a horror movie. Um, tile floor. There was no decorations. There was no furniture. You know, we, we each had a bed and a bedside table. That, you know, that was basically it. He was on one side of the building. I was on the other um, so it was just this kind of abandoned warehouse kind of feel. And I remember one night in particular coming home late at night, and I could see that my buddy was already home. His truck was parked there, so I assumed he was asleep. So I'm trying to come in quietly. You know, I walk through the front door, and I go back to our bathroom, and I turn on the creepy, flickering, fluorescent light, you know, brush my teeth, wash my face, turn the light back off, go back into my side of the building where my bed is, and, you know, I'm sitting there getting, getting dressed for bed, which basically means taking off my shoes and my watch, you know, and I'm taking off my watch and setting it by the, by the bedside table, you know, taking off my shoes, about to get into bed. And then all of a sudden, two hands grabbed my ankles like this. Yeah. Um, and I screamed. I screamed like I've never screamed before. And uh, my, my friend had apparently been waiting under my bed for two hours just waiting for me to come home, right? And uh, he was all covered with like kitty litter and fur balls and dirt and dust under my bed, you know, like he'd just been, because we never cleaned the place, right? And, uh, but it was worth it to him to see me scream and fly into the air. He said, literally, I levitated, right? It wasn't even like a jump. It was just like, whoa. And uh, that was a scary moment, right? That was facing my fears. I I was always a little afraid of the boogeyman getting me out there anyway, because it was creepy and weird and eerie and out there in the middle of nowhere, um, and finally my day had come. My fears had been realized. Now, just so you know, I did get him back, and I'll share that story with you another time. Um, I did get him back, and that was a lot of fun. But we, we all have different fears, right? We all have different things that scare us, and I mentioned this earlier. There are things that keep us up, right? There are things that make our stomach hurt or or maybe a, a clue would be things that you get really angry about. That's when that fight or flight thing is coming on and you, you want to fight this thing because you're afraid of, of losing something or you're afraid of, of something that's really valuable to you being threatened. The things that cause us anxiety, the things that cause us to explode in anger, the things that cause us to have nightmares, those are the things that we fear. Jesus says this in, in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus has this, uh, this idea that we should prioritize our fears. Right? There, there are ultimate things that should be actually more scary to us than sometimes the secondary things that drive our daily life. Uh, and we want to be challenged to recognize what are those daily things that grip our heart, that grip our soul, that maybe make it hard for us to function and we want to take our fear out of those things and place our fear 
have a genuine fear of the Lord as the only thing really worth fearing. And through the gospel, we recognize that we don't even really have to be afraid of him in the sense that we were before because we're forgiven for our sins because of the cross. We can have a restored relationship with God through what Jesus has accomplished. And in that realization, then he becomes our stronghold. And that's, that's what this text is about. God being our only ultimate protection against those secondary fears in life that can incapacitate us, that can make us unable to function. We see this unfolded in the text. In the first three verses, he talks about confidence, right? He talks about turning our fear to confidence. That's the direction we want to go in. We don't want to be incapacitated. We don't want to be stuck, frozen, anxious. We want to have a confidence that God is taking care of us. So how do we get there? Verse 1 he first of all just declares that the Lord is our confidence. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? One of the uh, techniques of Hebrew poetry or one of the patterns of Hebrew Hebrew poetry is that it restates ideas, which is really cool because that makes it uh, translatable, right? So in our language, uh, we do poetry often by sound, right? By the number of syllables in a line or by rhyming sounds or by you know, matching up consonants that start with the same letter or end with the same sound. So we have very sound-oriented understanding of poetry. Hebrew poetry is unique, and this is really an awesome thing. Like God thought this up, right, so that it can be translated into any language. It's an idea-based rhyming. And so they, they state things in parallel ways. They'll state something, and then they'll state it again in another way, and they're repeating ideas. And so we have that in the first line, God's our light and our salvation. So he's kind of defining those things by each other. He's our light. He's our salvation. Those are the same thing, right? Light is is safety to us. How many of you, when you come home at night and it's dark, you turn your light on, right? Why do you turn your light on? You don't need your light, really, right? I mean, you've memorized where everything is in the house. You could just cruise around in the dark, couldn't you? I mean, your light, it makes you feel safe, right? And he's saying that here. God's our light and he's our salvation. He makes us feel safe. When I was a security guard, Uh, During my seminary years, a large part of what I did was I shined a flashlight around, right? I wasn't even an armed security guard, but I made these college kids feel safe, or at least I thought I did. I made them feel safe with my flashlight, right? I would check dark hallways. I would check behind buildings. I mean, that was just my job was to shine my light places. And so that's a normal thing in culture. We, We think that light brings safety. If the street light on your block goes out, you might call the city and say, you know, I think I want my street light to be fixed so we can keep the crime down in the neighborhood, right? It's this association. Uh, we even see it in John 3. There's this great quote Jesus has in John 3. He says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So when we're doing something that's wrong, we we want the darkness to cover it. But when we want safety, we want light. And so we have this mixed reaction to light, but the, the psalmist says, the Lord is my light, and he's my salvation. He he associates those two things together, and then he gives another parallel. In the next line, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So God's my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He's the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So 
So he's starting off just saying, I don't have to be afraid of anything because God's my light. I don't have to be afraid of anything because he's my salvation. I don't have to be afraid of anything because he's my stronghold. He's my fortress. He's the one that's going to protect me. How, how many of you, when you go into your house at night, ladies, if your husband's deployed, do you, do you lock your doors? Yeah? Some of you know? Okay, I'm getting no reactions. All right. I would bet just statistically most of you lock your doors, right? And there's this idea that you want protection. And so the psalmist is saying, he's my stronghold. He's my lock. He's my fortress. He's my safety. God is that safety, right? A physical lock can only protect us for so long, but God is our ultimate lock. He's our ultimate safety. He's our ultimate stronghold. He goes on in verse 2, says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. So he's saying, it, it feels, like I don't think he's talking about zombies. I think he's talking about it feels like people want to eat me up. They want to destroy me. There are things like that in your life, right? Um, if your bank account or say your retirement account is empty or your career is threatened or the relationships that are really important to you are threatened, you may feel like you are being eaten alive. So this is that poetic language that David gives us. We saw that a few weeks ago. I have a picture here of a zebra being eaten by a lion. Um, I tried to, I was nice. I didn't get a bloody one, right? Okay. I was nice, wasn't I? But still, this is not something we see every day. Any of you ever been uh, attacked by a lion or involved in a lion attack? Okay, one of you back in the back. All right, it's rare. It's rare in our culture though, right? For David, he's seen, he's seen this. He's lived through this. He was a shepherd, right? It said when he went up against Goliath, he told King Saul, he's like, well, God delivered a bear and a lion into my hands. Like I've had to fight off lions and bears before when they were attacking my sheep. So, I mean, he's, he's seen this a little more closely probably than we do. Um, if you grew up in Texas, you might have had coyotes carry off some of your animals or you might have had a, a wild cat or, you know, there's even mountain lions around here. Did y'all know there are mountain lions in central Texas? Yeah, there are some. Um, not too many. But you might have some familiarity with this, but more likely, you just have been through experiences that feel this way, right? And I think what David is doing is he's, he's seen this happen, but he's not saying that, that real people are really trying to eat up his real flesh. I think he's speaking poetically. Again, I think this is helpful for us. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we saw him do this before. It's helpful for us to describe how we feel in vivid ways. Those of you that are very black and white scientific thinkers, you're like, that's just not true. I can't say it that way. Well, it's, it's helpful. God's wired us as human beings to speak dramatically, right? So have an appreciation. Probably if you're that kind of thinker, God's blessed you with a spouse that's more dramatic in their wording and emotions than you are, right? So learn from them and learn from the, the example here of David of speaking dramatically about, oh, this horrible thing that's happening. Le- learn to give words to what you're going through. And David's doing that here. He's saying, these terrible things are happening, and he's expressing the negative, yet he's saying, my confidence is in the Lord, right? That's a part of the process. Let's go on and look at verse uh, three. He says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. So there's kind of a building and expanding, right? Do you see from verse 2 to verse 3, there's um, these, these people want to eat my flesh, yet it says, my adversaries and foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Kind of an expanding, right? From 
those wanting to eat your flesh, to an army, to an entire war against you. So he's talking in more and more expansive terms about the odds being stacked against you. When you're really fearful of something, you, you feel utter despair. You feel like there's nothing that can be done. This is the end, right? I've, I've put all my eggs in this basket, and it's getting destroyed. And so the process that we see here is recognizing that great fear, and then we call this sometimes repentance, right? Turning. Repentance means literally a change of mind or a change of heart. It's turning from everything is banking on this to God's my hope. See, when you're really ultimately afraid of something, when you're despairing, when you feel like it's all over, it's because you've, you've banked on that thing. And I don't know what that is in your life. I don't know what the that is that you're really afraid of. I don't know what the that is that you're banking on, that you are relying on, that is driving your fears, that's keeping you up at night, that's making you sweat, that's making you angry or despairing. I don't know what that is. The Holy Spirit knows what that is. And David gives us an example here of recognizing it, saying, these things are coming against me. It's real. It's scary. It feels like I'm being eaten alive, yet I will trust in the Lord. And I'll trust in him. And when we talk about gathering in community to pray with others, um, when Donald announced Celebrate Recovery, he said, we're, we're trying to obey what, what James talks about in James 5, where it says, uh, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. That's what the process looks like of, of learning to do what David is doing in these first three verses, is that you're with other Christians and you're saying, all my hope has been in this, but I want my hope to be in the Lord. Will you pray for me? Will you help me? Because I am terrified. I feel like I'm being eaten alive. Like this adversary wants to eat my flesh, yet I will trust in the Lord. I know he's my ultimate stronghold. So will you pray for me? Will you help walk me through that? That's what that dynamic looks like in our life. And so that can, that can be in, in a class, right? We try to produce classroom settings where you can experience that. We talk about home groups where you can gather in a home group and, and be authentic about asking for prayer, not, not just praying for Aunt Sally. It's good to pray for Aunt Sally, Right, but it's, it's even better for us to grow when we ask for someone to pray for us. And that's a, that's a, a Christian application that, that oftentimes we turn prayer into just praying for other people. But it says in James 5, confess your sins one to another, pray for each other that you may be healed. Ask people to pray for you too. And you can work through this process of recognizing I'm terrified of this. I feel like my, I'm being eaten alive. I feel like an army is against me. I feel like adversaries are against me. But God's my stronghold. He's my hope. So help me to hope in him. Help me to really see that he's proved himself through Jesus, that he sent Jesus to take my sins on the cross and give me his life so I know I can trust him, so I know he's my stronghold. And as we work through that, that's that ongoing process of sanctification. He turns our fear to confidence. That's what that looks like. That's how that works out in our life. And so we work that out in our our private prayer time, but also in our our prayer with other people and our relationship with others in community. Imagine what it would be like to really be confident. Like, think about the that that you're afraid of, right? I don't know what that is. I don't know what the that is that terrifies you, that is, is your deepest fear, that it, you feel like if you lost that, you'd lose everything. But just think about it, what it would be like to no longer be afraid of that anymore, to be able to rest in Jesus, to have a sense of reckless abandonment. I'm going to be okay. Right? Like with the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, we see this incredible, like for me to die as Christ and to live as Christ, right? Like either way, I'm okay. 
For, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he says in Philippians. What would it be like to have that kind of reckless abandon, to have that feeling of, I'm going to be okay either way. If I live, it's for him. And I don't know what's going to happen, but he's going to use me. If I die, I get to be with him, and it's going to be okay. Think about what that would be like to no longer be afraid of whatever that is in your life, to have your fear turn to confidence. That's what God wants to do in your life, and it's a process. It's not, it's not like it happens like this. It's an ongoing process, but this is what God wants to do, and we see this example in the Psalms. The next thing that we see, this process looking like him turning fear to beauty. He turns our fear to beauty. So look at the next few verses, verses 4 through 6. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So first of all, he says, this, this is what I want, right? I want to live in God's house forever. How many of you ever are like, I want to just live in that church every day. I want to just spend the night there, right? It's a beautiful building, and so you probably think that. I'm, I'm being silly here. I don't think he's completely focused on the physical meeting of God's people in God's house, right? I think this is one of those already not yet kind of verses here. So there's a lot of these in scripture where we see this, this already, already we get to experience God's presence through a relationship with God through Christ. He's forgiven our sins. He's given us his righteousness. We have a real forgiven, free relationship with God. We can talk to him. We know he delights in us as his children. We can know him like that. We can call out to him as our Abba Father, knowing that he's forgiven us and he loves us. But there's all, all this, this not yet part as well. So already we're with him. Already we're forgiven, but not yet. It's not all perfect yet. I, I'm not completely sinless. I still do stupid things. There's still disease and death and brokenness in this world we live in. So the not yet is the future of all things being made right. The vision and revelation is heaven coming down to earth, creation being renewed, all the good things of this world without the sin and the death and the brokenness. It's hard for us to even imagine what that looks like, but that's the promise, so that's the not yet. So here we have that here, and in a lot of the Psalms where he talks about worshiping God in his house, right? God's people gathering is supposed to be a foretaste of that. So in this uh, example, you know, them gathering in the temple or the tabernacle, that would be an experience of them being in God's presence, God coming down to earth, being his presence where God reveals himself through his word, where we, we, we pray to him, we sing to him. We're supposed to get a taste of being in God's presence as we gather for worship. But there's also the future reality of really, really being in his presence, right? So there's the foreshadow, the already, and then there's the not yet of it just being complete and perfect. And that's kind of what David is talking about here. And what he says is that when we gaze on the beauty of the Lord, that's going to make us want to, to make beauty and share beauty then, right? So look again at verse, the second half of verse four. He talks about dwelling in the house of the Lord, and then he says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. I want to get a vision of, of who he is, how beautiful he is, how awesome he is. Now we would say, again, we get that picture most clearly when we understand the cross, that God gave himself for us that we're sinners in need of salvation, that he's forgiven us, 
and he wants to have a relationship with us and he adopts us as his child. So he delights in us and he loves us. And we can be free in his presence. We understand that through the gospel. Jesus taking our sins and giving us his righteousness. And then we understand that by extension as we gather to celebrate the gospel in worship or as we gather with other Christians in fellowship. Jesus says, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am with them. I am in their midst. And so there's this sense that whenever we focus on Jesus, we get to see him. And we even see this in Galatians where Paul says, Christ Jesus was vividly portrayed to you as crucified. And that word vividly means like he was thrown up on the video screen. But we know the Galatians didn't have video screens back in the first century, right? So when Paul says that Jesus was vividly portrayed to them like on a video screen, what Paul is saying is that you see Jesus when you, see the, when you hear the gospel proclaimed. We see him when we hear the gospel proclaimed. And so that's the same kind of thing that David is talking about here. I want to gaze upon your beauty. I want to see you. And we see him when we understand who Jesus is, what he's done for us. And Jesus even says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that's what it looks like to see him. And when we see him, then we're going to react. Look at verse 5. He says, He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So it's the process again of he's my stronghold. He's my protector. When bad things happen, I know he's going to be my protector because I've seen him. I've seen his beauty in the cross. I've seen his beauty and how he's revealed himself. And then in verse 6, what do we do? Now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. And so this was, I I warned you before we sang today, I said, one of the applications is going to be that you're going to need to smile and sing loudly, right? And that's where I get it from. This is my smile and sing loudly verse, okay? God calls us to smile and sing loudly. What does it say? My head shall be lifted up above all my enemies. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Now, for some of you, one of those is more easy than the other, right? For some of you, you are not able to make melodies, and that's okay. I just want to tell you, this is a safe place. You can make shouts of joy, okay? Are you following me? Some of you can't hear uh, music. You can't hear pitch, and so you're tempted to not sing. But the Bible commands you to make a joyful noise, okay? So smile and sing loudly. Even if you're not sure you're on pitch or not, the, the people around you that are on pitch will make up for it, okay? We're, we're a group, we're a team. You are the choir of this church. You've probably noticed we don't have like a big choir with 100 people back here. You're the choir. You are the choir. So an application is that we would sing loudly and that we would sing with joy. It doesn't even have to be your favorite music. One of the things I've learned over the years, worshiping in different environments, is that we can honor Jesus even if we don't love the style of music. So when we play certain styles up here, we're not trying to say, This is the God-endorsed style, right? Because they're going to play a completely different style uh, when we go to our friends in Guatemala. Uh, We have uh, the church I came from. They do a lot of work in Ukraine. They said the the music there tends to be a little more dreary, right? Different culture. Uh, One of my pastor friends has made a lot of trips to uh, Africa. He worked with refugees after the, the horrible genocide in Rwanda and Zaire. Those people have lived through horrible genocide. And their worship is far more celebratory and joyful than anything he'd seen in America, right? And so there's cultural things at work there. Different people worship in different styles, but we must worship. So I'm not commanding you to look 
like this culture or that culture. I'm just saying you need to smile. You need to sing loudly. You need to participate. That's the bottom line. So for some people, bodily participation might be raising your hands. For some reason, that makes me a little uncomfortable. Like once I get my hands past here, it feels weird to me, right? You know, but I like to shake and, and kind of jump around when I worship. Uh, you might like to nod your head. You might like to clap. Uh, my wife was, was spanked when she clapped as a kid, so she doesn't like to, spank, to clap, right? Um, so, I mean, you know, there's different thing, inhibitions that we have and different things we feel that make it feel weird to respond certain ways. But let's just have a bottom line here of saying we should all at least be loud. We should all at least smile, okay? That's like an entry level that we can all do that we should, we should respond. That's part of what it means to recognize that God is the beautiful one. We're going to respond by trying to make beauty, make melody, make music, shout, and make these uh, sacrifices together. He says, um, well, let me show you this picture. I have an example of this here. Any of you ever seen the movie? <laughs> have you ever seen the movie Elf? Have you ever seen that movie? Okay, it's a great movie. Um, now, this is not canonical. This is not scripture, but he's got this kind of proverb. He says that... Um, the, the great way to bring Christmas cheer is to sing loudly for all to hear. Have you heard that one before? So again, that's not in the Bible, but I think it's good advice. I think it's really good advice. A great way to spread cheer is to sing loudly for all to hear. And so I think that's something that we can act on. That's something that we can do. We can follow the example of Elf. And we, we feel goofy sometimes, but it's really interesting. A lot of research has been done, like psychological and sociological research has been done that it's hard to resist a smiling person. Have you all ever seen this before? Um, frowning doesn't have the same viral effect on people in a psychological way, but smiling does. When someone smiles, it's hard to not smile back. That's the way we're wired as humans. I, I was just reading some research on it last week, which I thought was really amazing, that smiles are actually more powerful, more influential than frowns. Um, so it's just something to employ. I know a lot of you that are Army officers, you, you know, probably taught not to ever smile, but it might be a good thing to, to try. It just might be something to try. Um, he turns fear to beauty. We are able to be free and make beauty and, and make art and make the world a better place after we've looked at how beautiful God is. After we've seen him and, and come to terms with God is awesome, that makes us want to spread that awesomeness. Right? So just like I said, just a real simple application is a singing in gathered worship, but a broader application is just bringing beauty and smile into every, every place that you go, bringing joy. He gives a specific application here of making sacrifices. Uh, he says at the end of verse 6, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. A, a good way to think about what does it look like to make sacrifices, because we don't bring bulls and goats the way they did in the Old Testament, right? And so a way that people talk about New Testament sacrifices a lot of times are time, talent, and treasure. That's an easy way to remember it. Three T's, right? Time, talent, and treasure. God calls on us to make sacrifices of our time. He wants us to spend our time for the honoring of Jesus. What are things that you can do with your time to help people see that Jesus is awesome? He wants us to spend our treasure, our, our money. He wants, he wants you to, if you consider this your church home, to support the work here. We always say if, if you don't consider this your church home, we don't want your money. I mean, we'll take it anyway, but... We, we see it as a part of discipleship, right? We, you know, we see it as, that, that's a part of joining with a community of people in ministry together to say, hey, we're, we're on the same team. We're about spreading the fame of Jesus in this city and across the world. We're going to do that together. That's what the money is about, right? That, that's why you, you share, make sacrifices of your treasure to 
help support the work here. Also helping support things like our trip to Guatemala that's coming up, our trip to Berlin that we take, uh, helping support things like Compassion International. Last year we had a Compassion Sunday. We sponsored 50 more kids than the, the 50 to 100 that people were already sponsoring in our church. So exciting things like that where we get to spread the fame of Jesus across the world and across our community by, by sacrificing our treasure. And then talent. You guys have unique talents, right? You're all gifted in ways that I'm not, that the person next to you is not, and God wants you to sacrifice those talents for his sake. Use them for his fame and for his glory and for spreading his beauty in the world. So that's what it looks like for regular Christians today, an echo of what David was talking about in the Old Testament. He also turns our fear to knowledge. If you look at verse 7, got a longer section here where I believe he's talking about uh, the dynamic of God teaching us. He tells us what to do with our life. He gives us direction. The, the Old Testament word for law is Torah, which literally means direction. God, God tells us what to do. Sometimes we feel fearful when we don't know what to do. When we feel unprepared. We feel unequipped. He's going to equip us. He's going to teach us what to do. He says this in verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. He's saying, God, speak to me. Will you speak to me? That's a lot of the dynamic of the Psalms. A lot of this whole series when we talk about colliding our emotions with his truth is that dynamic of that tension of, God, God, will you tell me what to do? Will you guide me? Will you speak to me? Will you reveal yourself to me? He says in verse 8, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Now, I don't, I don't know where David has taken this from. We don't have a story from David's life where we see specifically his father and mother forsaking him, but apparently he knows what that's like. Um, I don't know if you know what that's like. Maybe it wasn't a father or mother. Maybe it was just someone really important to you that has forsaken you, that's abandoned you. And the scriptures say here that, that David knows what that's like. He, he's experienced that being betrayed, that being abandoned. And he's saying, God, don't forsake me. Don't abandon me like these other people have. And so I want you to know that, that David understands how you feel. And again, the New Testament says that Jesus understands how you feel. He's this high priest that's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. And when those temptations come, he didn't sin and he calls on us to follow his example by trusting in the work that he did for us and to trust in him through those times. Say, God, please don't forsake me the way these other people have. God, God's the one person we can count on to not let us down. And so I know some of you, you have a, you have a hard heart. You have a crusty heart because you've been hurt, right? You're, you're afraid to allow God to love you. You don't want him to love you. You don't want to take that risk. And I would just dare you to take that chance. Because he's the one that won't let you down. He's the one that won't forsake you. He says in verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. So people are lying. You may have had that happen. False witnesses, people lying about you, talking trash about you, pushing back against you, threatening violence against you. But he again comes back to the statement of faith in verse 13. I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's his hope. He believes in the not yet, right? We talked about that earlier. There's the already presence of God and the not yet. We're looking forward to that 
ultimate land of the resurrection, the land of the living, will be face to face with God. And David's saying here, I, I believe that. I believe I'll get to see you, God. I believe I'll, I'll be there with you. And so as we look to the word, the word informs us, the word teaches us about these things. The word educates us about these things. We can turn our, our fear to knowledge. As we seek him, he will reveal himself to us. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. He, he will reveal himself to you. I have a picture here of what I would call test anxiety. Maybe, I don't know if y'all have had this frustration. You can see a kid in the background just kind of writing answers down, and then the kid in the foreground is like, I don't know what to do. I don't know the answer. I don't know what to write. We've all felt that way. Some of you are out of school now, so you don't have to worry about performing on a test. But we all have these kind of nightmares where you show up somewhere unprepared. I'm sure you do. I know I've heard this from different people, different forms, right? Uh, Whatever it is you do, all of a sudden you're there and you're not ready to do what you do, right? You're unprepared. You don't have your stuff together. You don't know the answer. You don't know what to say. We've all been there. And just being a human being, we kind of live every day with this constant low-level anxiety of that, right? This constant anxiety that will be found out. This constant feeling of I'm, I'm not prepared. I don't have the right answer, right? We know what Adam and Eve felt like after they sinned and they were hiding in the garden naked. We, we all live with that feeling of I'm undone. I'm unprepared. I don't have my stuff together. I don't have the answer. When he's going to quiz me, I don't know what I'm going to say. And what we see the psalmist working through is the answer that turns our fear to knowledge is, is Jesus. We always joke about, like, if you're in a Sunday school class and you don't know the answer, just say Jesus, okay? <laughs> just say Jesus, and that's a, that's a good answer, right? That's the answer here. The psalmist is saying, I'm, I'm worried. I'm, I'm not sure if you're going to forsake me like everybody else, but I'm going to seek you. I'm going to seek you. I, I know that you're going to answer me. I know that I will see you in the land of the living. I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says, that's my hope. That's my hope. And that's really what motivates us to change. That's really what teaches us. Real motivation comes from that belief that God is good, that we will see him, that we'll see his goodness, that he will love us, that he will change us. We all live with the shame. The shame's there all the time. So different people in different kind of tribes of Christianity debate about what really motivates people to change. And there's a lot of Christians out there that think, the more I shame you, the more you'll improve in life. But the New Testament overwhelmingly shares this vision of our, our motivation for change is a God that loves us. The shame's already there. I mean, you know you're undone. You know you're unprepared for the test. You know you're not ready for the judgment. There's a sense of natural law wired into all of us. We know there's a problem. The gospel comes in and says there's a solution to that problem. Yeah, we are all sinners. None of us have a righteousness of our own. But Jesus gives us his righteousness and takes our sin upon himself on the cross. And so the answer is in God being our stronghold. That's the answer to the test, and that's the motivation for change. That's what's going to teach us what we need to know to to pass the test of life. That's what's going to turn our our fear to knowledge. And that's what's going to take us to where the psalmist ends in verse 14. The last verse, he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. There's this battle we live in of an already faith, right? An already presence of God, an already forgiveness. We have hope. But there's also this 
pain, the struggle that we live through too. We're, we're sick. We're still not, all our, recon, our relationships aren't all reconciled, right? Like everything's not fixed yet. We still long for everything to be fixed. And the psalmist says, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us vividly through Jesus. We thank you that he took our sin, that he gives us life, that he was the true Adam, that he was the true Israelite, that he was everything that we should be. And through him, you delight in us. God, you love us. And ultimately, that's the thing that turns our our fear into confidence. That's the thing that turns our our fears into beauty, our fears into knowledge, the, the hope that we have in you and your love for us. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.